This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up on the programme, we're tracing the origins of myths and legends. We're simply a tale-telling species. We like stories, we like narratives. They're probably our most important basic single form of entertainment. We discover where dragons come from. The flying, fire-breathing dragon is absolutely European. And what's more, it's Christian. It doesn't appear until the Middle Ages. You get flying serpents earlier, but not something that looks like a flying crocodile that breathes fire. And we'll look at how urban myths came into being. All that coming up in a few moments with our special guest, Professor Ronald Hutton. But first, here's what's coming up on future episodes of the English Heritage Podcast. 1539 to 40, Henry VIII is really worried about the prospect of an invasion by the French or the Spanish, that he starts to build artillery forts like this one all around the east and south coasts. It's a walk with soul. Get into the land, feel the weather, see the trees, see what stage of development that nature is in right now, see the very latest version of nature, you know. She was somebody who worked very hard for her entire life, working her way up from a farmer's daughter in rural Devon to cooking for the aristocracy in a time when it was very, very rare indeed for women to reach that level of their profession. Plenty more to look forward to over the next few weeks there. Now, in 2019, English Heritage is telling the tales behind the myths, legends and folklore of England. England has a rich tapestry of stories which have been passed on from generation to generation, exported worldwide, translated into countless languages and even been turned into Hollywood films. Many of these stories are rooted in the history of the places looked after by English heritage. Joining me to get to the bottom of a few of these stories is a leading authority on British folklore, Professor Ronald Hutton. Ronald is a professor of history at the University of Bristol, a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and an English heritage trustee. Now, Professor, my first question is, is there a difference between a myth, a legend and a folktale? A myth is a story which explains, in theory, how an aspect of the world around us came to be, and it's probably not literally true. A legend, by contrast, is a story about a particular bunch of people and a particular set of events, and there may actually be a real story behind it. And a folk tale is a story which is developed among a community of ordinary people. In other words, it's not the same as a heroic epic or a high literature composed for an elite. Some of these myths and legends date back over a thousand years. How can stories like this survive such long periods of time? There are two ways in which stories survive a long time. One is simply that they are so integral to a particular people or a particular community. In other words, they explain why those people are where they are and what they are and how they are. So they're built into the foundations of identity. And the other way they survive is simply that they turn to literature. And so they're transmitted by writing across the centuries among a reading public. What's your theory on on why we dream up all these fantastic tall tales. There are two things going on. Uh, The first is that we're simply a tale-telling species. We like stories, we like narratives. They're probably our most important basic single form of entertainment. And the second reason is that stories go on explaining things. They help people get a sense of being rooted in a landscape, 
in an identity as a bunch of people and in a sense of continuing unfolding organic time. We talk about people there in that answer, but dragons are a key part of some of the stories that have been passed down over time. And St. George and the Dragon is one famous one, of course. And St. George is the patron saint of England. And we're representing English heritage here in a way. Where does this idea of a fire-breathing, scaly animal come from? Because I understand, obviously, it's, it's a Chinese image, isn't it? as well as something that's been adopted by England. It's not a Chinese image because Chinese dragons don't breathe fire. The flying, fire-breathing dragon is absolutely European. And what's more, it's Christian. It doesn't appear until the Middle Ages. You get flying serpents earlier, but not something that looks like a flying crocodile that breathes fire. Most human societies have monsters in their stories that look like giant snakes or lizards or crocodiles, largely because these animals are menaces in most of the continents of the world. But Europe is unique in having a flying, fire-breathing, scaly monster, and it comes out of the Bible. And is that to do with the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and the serpent? Is, is that anything? No, it's another bit. It's the book of Job, where most unusually in the Bible, God speaks in his own voice. And he points the existence of this creature called a Leviathan, which is an enormous fire-breathing animal with scales that can't be penetrated from outside by weapons. And all that's needed to create the medieval European dragon, the fire drake, is to enable this thing to fly. And since God says the Leviathan exists in all types of environments, to give it wings is a very easy way of getting it between them. So where did this idea of a Leviathan come from then? The Leviathan's almost certainly a sperm whale. Because you get these things in the ancient Mediterranean, which is where the Old Testament was written, and when you see a whale out to sea, which is mostly the only way you're going to see it, uh, occasionally you'll find one dead washed up on the beach, but usually rotted. What you're seeing is this thing that sends up a plume of water from its blowhole. But from a distance, most people are going to think that's smoke. Oh. And so are going to imagine it has a fire burning inside it and can breathe fire. And when the thing comes ashore occasionally dead, you'll find it has absolutely enormous teeth and a thick blubbery hide. And so you put this lot together and hey presto, you get the medieval Christian dragon. It's quite a big leap from something that um, lives in the sea to something that suddenly is flying and then is breathing fire instead of actually uh, expelling water from its um, blowhole. That's right, but it's not such a big leap if you actually think that the plume of water is smoke. That way it all begins to fall into place. But I suppose that's where some of these um, exaggerations and, and stories come from. There does seem to be a, a bit of a resurgence of mythology in popular culture today. I'm, I'm thinking of the Lord of the Rings series, which is, I know, a few years ago now, but Robin Hood's been remade a couple of times in Hollywood, especially in recent years. Why do you think we're seeing a resurgence of this type of storytelling and these, these characters? I don't think these stories have ever stopped. So with Robin Hood, for example, you have the silver screen Errol Flynn in the 1930s. You have the Kevin Costner version in the 1990s. And now we have the CGI version. And Russell Crowe. Absolutely so. So there are two things going on. The first is that these are legends which are extremely malleable. 
So in one century, Robin Hood can be a dispossessed nobleman who goes wild with working class people, but but leads them and then comes back to rule a castle at the end. Or the more up-to-date Robin Hood can be one of the working class himself emerging from the Greenwood in a world of corrupt and untrustworthy royalty and aristocrats. So the great thing about a legend is you can spin it in all sorts of different ways. And really what's just happening is tales that get told in every generation are being given the work over with new cinematic technology that can make them even more vivid. And have you seen a development in the character of Robin Hood from the Errol Flynn one to the, I think, Taron Egerton one, which is the most recent one? Can you sort of read into these characters and how they're changing over time? Yes, I can. Basically, our Robin gets scrubbier, more pagan, more ecological friendly and more working class. That's film history for you. Well, let's move on to some other aspects of myth, legend and folklore. English Heritage, of course, looks after several hundred properties. Tintagel Castle is one of them, and King Arthur is uh, linked to that location. King Arthur, of course, has been a a film which has been done a few times as well. How would you try and sum up the, the story of King Arthur? I know it's changed a lot over the years. Well, it's an impossible question because we'll probably never know the real story behind King Arthur unless archaeology turns up something completely unexpected in the next few decades. Arthur begins as a Welsh hero, and he's not a hero of legend, he's a figure of history. He occurs in Welsh histories from the 820s onwards as a great figure who unified the British the people who become the Welsh, in resisting the villainous invading Anglo-Saxons. And it's only hundreds of years later that he attracts legendary and mythological and magical associations and meets characters like Merlin and Lancelot and Guinevere and becomes a true figure of romance. And the round table is introduced around that period as well. That's right. Most of what we really love in the stories, uh, the sword in the stone, the birth at Tintagel with his dad being magically transformed into the likeness of somebody else, the Holy Grail, it's all part of this 12th century package. Well, let's um, look at some other aspects of myths and legends as well. Another tale I like to talk about might not be as well known, This is Berry Pomeroy Castle in Devon, uh, which is also linked to English heritage. It is, as I understand it, the story of a dastardly squire who supposedly denies two dreamers of riches. What's the story of this? Okay, it's about a couple of ordinary working class guys, labourers, in the locality of the castle, which is the most haunted castle in England. And they both have the same dream on the same night of going into the ruined castle up to a chimney, plucking out a stone there and finding a crock full of hidden gold inside and becoming very rich. And so they set out at once on the same day, having realised they've had the same dream the previous night. But it's getting towards dark and an incredible thunderstorm blows up as they approach the castle. And they're terrified and they run into the local landowner, the local squire, who asks them what they're doing there and why they're looking scared. And they tell him their story and the squire says, oh, don't you know that treasure's protected by evil spirits and they're especially deadly at night and this storm is raised by them to kill you. So if I were you, I'd back off, have a good night's sleep and come back in daylight when the spirits are much less powerful and see if your dream is true. 
and the two lads do what the squires proposed and they come back the next day and they find that the stone has been prized loose from the chimney breast and there's an empty crock inside where the gold used to be and the squire denies having done anything but everybody realises he suddenly got very rich. So for that story to sort of be real you have to believe in dreams and premonitions but you also have to not trust your neighbour in a way. Yes, this is uh, a bit of social stereotyping for discontented tenants used to greedy landlords. It basically makes the point you can never trust your landlord. All the upper classes are in a conspiracy to make the working class as poor as possible forever and ever. Because the squire, as we should probably point out, is the landowner. That's indeed the local landowner, the bigwig. The guy who lives in the manor house and drinks lots of ports and hunts foxes with hounds. And the two men below him are obviously of a lower social status. Way down. They're they're labourers, which means that uh, they earn a fraction of the the squire's income for back-breaking daily labour. Let's move on to some um, modern-day myths. Now, these I hear being spoken about as urban myths. And some of the urban myths that obviously consistently crop up in the 20th century and and even today are the Loch Ness Monster and a large cat prowling Dartmoor. Uh, Where do these myths come from? These myths are classic cases of apparent real experiences, which may not be everything they seem to be. For example, if you see a a very large cat in the twilight that's gone feral and you think it's twice the size it is, then that can be the origin of uh, a beast of Bodmin or an Exmoor Black Panther story. But combined with these original triggering experiences is an ancestral belief in creepy semi-supernatural beasts that prowl around your locality. Uh, Traditional England is full of phantom black dogs and glowing enormous black bulls and horses that come out of lakes and rivers with wild eyes and uh, sometimes flaming breath. So if somebody sees something in Loch Ness that uh, looks like a sea monster or somebody meets uh, an apparently anomalous big cat at night, the story will tap into a deep, long tradition of belief in creatures like that and, and basically a fear of the countryside at night or deep water. So out of your um, myths and legends that are connected to English heritage places, um, what would be your favourite and why? We've talked about Tintagel, we've talked about Berry Pomeroy uh, Castle in Devon. Um, let's talk about your favourite place that's linked to an English heritage place. I have a favourite place and a favourite story. Favourite place is Wayland Smithy, which has a new Stone Age burial chamber with a long mound behind it in a lovely beech wood up on the Berkshire Downs. And the story is that it's the home of the divine smith, Wayland, an Anglo-Saxon blacksmith god. And if you have a horse you need shoeing, you just need to leave it by the chamber of the barrow at sunset. Put a silver coin on the capstone. When you come back, you'll have a lovely job done on your horse, and it'll still be there the following morning. But for a story, I'd like to go to the most haunted castle in England, which is Berry Pomeroy and uh, look at one of the lesser-known stories about it, which is about two sisters, one called Isabella and the other called Eleanor, who lived somewhere back in the Middle Ages. They both fell in love with the same man, but Eleanor was much more beautiful than Isabella, and Isabella got rid of her rival, her sister, by locking her, taking her by surprise in a room in the castle and leaving her to starve to death. 
As a result, Eleanor's ghost, uh, beautiful and tormented-looking, has walked the castle ever since, and she often appears in the battlements at night and encourages people to climb up to her and so fall to their deaths. She's a killer. But also, just to see her walk around the castle means that death is coming to somebody. There was a case of a local doctor who was called in to look after the caretaker's wife when the castle was in ruins and the caretaker lived in the only inhabitable bit of room. And the wife was getting better, but each day the doctor called. As he walked to the bedroom where the caretaker's wife was lying, this gorgeous woman suddenly appeared in an old-fashioned dress, not looking at him, walked past him with this anguished look on her face. The caretaker's wife was getting better, and the doctor happened to mention the appearance of this weird woman to the caretaker. And the caretaker said, oh no, that's Lady Eleanor, and that means my wife's going to die. And the doctor said, be silly, she, she's recovering. But a week later, the wife suddenly died. Now, this is not a folk tale. It's in the memoirs of the doctor who became court physician to one of the English kings. So that's a genuine, real story, a ghost story from Barry Pomeroy. Yes, that's neither a myth nor a legend. It's an extremely creepy memoir. As you were telling it, I was getting the uh, hairs on my arms standing up and on the back of my neck. You told a good story there. It's quite, I didn't even ramp it up. I could have put a lot more creep into it. Yeah, you could have done. I would have been running out the door. But why do you think you're attracted to that particular story? That, I mean, it is obviously pretty scary. Well, two things. First, it's so vivid. And the second thing is that it's an eyewitness account. Uh, and they're extremely rare in the annals of myth and legend. The physician was actually called Walter Farker. And he became the personal doctor to the future Edward VII when he was still Prince of Wales in the late Victorian period. I suppose my last question would be, why is it important to look at these old stories today? We've talked, I know, about how enduring they are. Why is it important to keep looking at them? Is it, is it a way of studying the human condition? I think there are two reasons why we can need to keep looking at old myths and legends. The first is that they won't go away anyway. They'll always be recycled in retellings in the latest technological form that represents our entertainment. And the second reason is that they are built into our character as people living in a particular place and with a particular set of buildings, landscapes and associations attached to those. It doesn't matter if your family has lived in what's now England for 14,000 years or four. You're, you're still dealing with the land and making your own relationship with it and listening to what it has to offer and deciding what messages, if any, you find in that is one of the most pleasant and exciting ways of making that personal relationship. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To visit the places we've been talking about, you can find opening times on the English Heritage website. We're back next week with our next step into England's story. In the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and see you next time.